Hey everybody, welcome back to season one of Bodies in the Bayous, the Texas Killing Fields, episode 15, the continuance of Calder Road. We left off um, the last episode with the background of Tim Miller and the founding of the Texas EquiSearch after his daughter Laura Miller was discovered alongside another young woman who we're going to talk about today. But first, we do have a listener question from Kim. Kim would like to know, couldn't the police have found some skin under the victim's fingernails where they may have been trying to fight off their attacker? I think it's a great question, Kim, and I appreciate you reaching out to us. There's always a possibility here that the um, police do have DNA evidence, and we can get into that later, but where that DNA evidence comes from, I'm, I'm not sure. I think it would be unlikely with the decomposition on the bodies that we have that, that there would be skin underneath the fingernails. And I think what you have to think of is, is that the body itself is breaking down. So any little itty bitty evidence like skin underneath the fingernails or, you know, what we talk about, like touch DNA today, you know, those types of things are also going to break down on that elements, just like the body's breaking down, but those are going to break down much faster. And so, you know, there's always the hope that the police have some sort of DNA evidence that they're not talking about. But from what early reports have always said, all these victims were found nude. And so to think that there would have been something like skin cells found on these bodies after that amount of time, I think is highly unlikely. Right. So unfortunately. Right. And we do talk about, you know, the harsh elements out here and, and different right. things um, just in the area that, you know, they were found. So, but I think when you, when you think about the body breaking down and especially on, um, you know, Laura Miller's body, which was almost completely skeletonized, you have to really look at anything that would have been that small and would have been that minute would have broken down long before even her body starts to break down. So it's highly unlikely. Right. But it's a great question. And thank you so much for listening and, and thanks for reaching out to us and, and asking. Um, again, you can always contact on our, us on our Facebook page or Facebook messenger. Um, to ask any questions. We are always interested in hearing from anybody about questions. So I think with that being said, we're going to get into um, information about the second victim. So this is February 2nd of 1986 and takes us really back to that field on Calder Road um, when, you know, you have the discovery of you know, the one body out there and then the police come out and the second body is discovered at the same time. So both are, both are in the field. Laura Miller's um, state of decomposition was partially, pretty much skeletonized at the time. The second body that's out there in Calder Field had been out there a much shorter period of time. I think the estimates were anywhere from one month to three months at that time. And, um, there, the ability to identify her, um, 
you know, certainly law enforcement was, was trying, but Laura Miller was identified relatively quickly. And, um, the second victim, what you get is little information that she was slightly taller than the Laura Miller and also taller than Heidi, who had been found out there uh, a year earlier. Um, and that her age ranged from the age of 20 to, uh, 35 years old. And other than that, um, nothing distinguishing, but the biggest thing that comes out of her information is we do have a clear cause of death. Um, this victim was shot in the back. So, um, that is, that is very clear and, um, it is identified within a relatively short period of time where the police come out and say that, um, whoever she was, she was shot in the back. Um, very little is said about trying to identify her, um, shortly after that, you don't come across much information, um, I think a year later, an article runs um, talking about the Miller family and their quest to find answers. And at that point in time, it is mentioned that there was this other young woman who was unidentified. Um, but, and that, you know, they're looking for information on her case. But as the years go by, you get less and less uh, requests for information. And so then that brings us to uh, 1991. And in July of 1991, you have um, a couple who is out horseback riding and they're off of Calder Road um, enjoying their day when they discover the remains of a young woman who is decapitated. So the skull is not with the remains, but the remains are there. Law enforcement is contacted and... Um, goes out to the scene, secures the scene. At this point in 1991, you have Calder Road right off of Irvine, which we've talked about quite extensively where that is. And you do have the Miller family who has erected crosses in Calder Field. And those three crosses to the earlier victims are there. So if somebody's wandering around or looking, there would have been a visual representation of where these women were remains were left. The Calder field, the 1991 body is actually located across the road. Right. And if you're in that area now, you don't really have that open field look or a dirt road anymore. What you have is a very busy road. Um, and when you're standing at the place where the crosses are and a cross is now erected there for this fourth victim, when you look across the street, you have a large housing development, right? Um, very much like you would see in <clears throat> any suburban area where all the houses have a very similar look. And there's a lot of businesses too there. There now. is a lot of businesses mm -hmm. there. Um, but the houses have a very similar look and there is a fence which blocks it off from um, 
Calder Road. So you can't exactly pinpoint the exact locations, but from newspaper articles, from from what we can gather, the you can look at where the location was and could pinpoint through the trees and the brush and the grass where the three other victims were found. Right. So a search was um, conducted by law enforcement and local volunteers. And so we've actually talked to a couple of different people who were there that at that time when that search was going on and um, tried to get a little bit of information from them. Um, and basically what they have described it as is, is a field, mm-hmm. you know, open, open kind of field, wandering through the brush. Um, so not something where, you know, you're like an open field area, more of an overgrown Texas right. field where, you know, you're almost bushwhacking it with machete. Right. Um, and so um, her skull was located about a hundred yards from her body. And that was three days after the discovery of her body when they did discover her skull. When they discovered her skull, it contained a top plate of dentures and only about four to six teeth on the lower jaw. It was animal activity that was the reason that the skull was removed from the body. So that we know happened after her body was placed in that field. Right. That was not something that, you know, occurred at the time of her death or something that was a result that caused her, her death. death right. Um, her death is one of those things where you go back to the manner of death is homicide. The cause of death is undetermined. Right. And, um, and so again, we're back to, you know, having an unidentified person, her, her remains were not identified. What they did come out and say is that she was short, um, between, I think about, uh, five feet to five, four and between the ages of 30 and 50 years old. Um, and then, you know, that they were looking for information of her about her. Um, so they were very hopeful that they would be able to identify her relatively quickly. And the reason that they were so hopeful was actually because of the dentures. Right. Um, and so, you know, I think this caused a lot of discussion with you and I originally about, um, kind of, you know, our, our dentures numbered and, you know, what, how could they be tracked and, I mean, they have to take a mold, right? They do you have know? to take a mold. So, and so, you know, is that mold kept? You know, um, how do you go about, like, asking these dentists? And what I, what I found out was that dentures can be actually numbered and identified. Like prosthetics. Right. Mm-hmm. But it really depends on the cost of the denture. Mm-hmm. So, um, and so if the dentures were inexpensive, there is a less likelihood chance that you're going to be identifying those dentures. And unfortunately that does seem the case here is that, you know, they hit a roadblock on trying Mm -hmm. to identify her through her dentures. Um, But police did do a couple of things and and tried to um, tried to actually try to identify both of these victims. And, and one was that they put up a um, 
large billboard um, on the corner of 518 and Highway 3. And the large billboard, you know, was was asking for information. They sent the skulls of both the victim found in 1986 and this victim found in 1991, which they commonly referred to the 1996. 86. I'm sorry, 1986. Yeah, yeah I'm sorry about that. Excuse me. 1986 um, victim as Jane Doe right. and the 19... 19- uh, 91 victim as Janet Doe. Right. Uh, they sent the uh, skulls of those two victims away to an artist in Kima, which is actually nearby, and um, had him do a rendering of what these women would look right. like. When they did that, the artist who is used to, you know, spending time and looking at, you know, trying to develop from uh, skulls and that type of thing, a um, rendering. The artist is able to look at Janet Doe's skull and notice that her cheekbone had been broken and also looked at her dental plate and then did come forward and say that her dental plate was broken too. Now, this is not something that might not have been known by law enforcement. It was probably known by law enforcement, but it wasn't announced at the time. What it does make you think about is the manner of death. Right. You know, and obviously the artist is, is coming out and saying that these things have happened and the artist can't tell you for sure whether or not those things had happened at the time of her death um, or if they possibly had happened prior Um, but it does, it does make you think that if they did happen at the time of her death, that probably she was beaten at the time of her death. Severely beaten. Well, and what we do know is that Heidi was severely beaten at the time of her death. And so, you know, it, it does come back to, you know, you're found in, in basically possibly the same location. And, and so, um, you know, it is. It is possible that, you know, this was a, a severe beating that happened um, and that these cases are connected. And so we go on like that for years, you know, back and forth, um, you know, every so often, you know, police asking for information, the artist sketch get put up on the billboard, you know, more sketches are done. The skulls are sent away again, you know, to have, um, like age progression. Yeah. And the, and to have some sort of, you know, like the clay placed over them and, and, you know, to try to update these pictures and to get better here. But, um, you know, constantly trying to figure out who these two are. Police come out and say that they believe that whoever killed these two individuals, that these individuals were probably transient or not from the area. Right. Um, And that's why they're not identified. Um, And so, you know, that's, they don't have any answers. It's not, it's not necessarily that they're not looking for them. I just don't think that those answers were coming in. Right. Um, and so 
two years after the last victim was discovered, the League City Police Department went to the FBI and said, we need some help with this case. And what would probably help us is a psychological profile on the person who killed them. Right. So this is the FBI profile that we were talking about yeah. last episode. So the FBI profile, FBI agent uh, David Gomez come, gave the FBI profile and he says all victims were killed by the same offender. He is organized, intelligent. He is focused and is looking for a certain type of victims. These murders are sexually motivated and the killer returns to the field to relive the sexual experience. The FBI believed that the killer knew the victims better than the victims knew him. Right. So, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. Right. Um, and so, you know, a couple of things, you know, that, so when you look at the artist renditions of these pictures, there is a similarity in the, the rendition. Right. Um, and there's also a similarity to the two victims, both Heidi and Laura, who were found earlier exactly. when you, when you look at them. Um, and so, you know, you, when you look at that, you definitely think this is somebody who's looking for the same type of victim. Um, and then I think later when they're discovered, maybe, maybe not. Mm -hmm. Um, I have no doubt that Laura and Heidi have a lot of similarities. Um, and so, and then to say that they're transients, but then at the same time to say that the killer, um, knew them better than maybe he, they knew him. That's vague. You know, it's, so I don't, I guess, you know, what seems to be coming out there is, is the FBI's belief that maybe he was stalking them ahead of time. I believe maybe stalking too, cause that's what comes to my mind uh -huh. with that. Um, maybe transient could possibly be something that could be described for that because, you know, Laura and them had just moved to yeah. that area also. So maybe it was that whole, you know, you're new to the area. Let me show you around mm. or, you know, oh, let me, you know, it could be something that simple. It could, you be. know, where and passing to them, it's nothing, but just, you know, the victimizer, it's like this whole relationship, right? That's how stalkers kind of are. Yes. You know? And, and I think that's a good point because when I look at this to me, and obviously I'm not an FBI profiler. Right. I mean, let's be clear, but <laughs> one day, but to me, it looks like victim of opportunity. Mm -hmm. So that you had the opportunity and therefore you took the opportunity. And that's just, you know, it, Laura and Heidi are both using a payphone mm -hmm. at, at a store. Um, from what we know, maybe they had used that payphone before. And so maybe possibly they had been seen by that person before. But to me, it looks like that opportunity. You have somebody alone. You have the ability to get them in your car. And so it's opportunity, mm -hmm. not, not necessarily, you know, somebody who was purposely looking for that victim. But, you know, again, I think 
we're not FBI profilers. Right. So, you know, um, organized and intelligent. Um, you, to me, I think that you have to, in some ways, give that to this, this offender, whether or not the offender is on a list of people who is a suspect, you're organized and intelligent enough to avoid getting caught. caught. Yep. And so, um, and when we go into talking about some of these suspects and stuff like that, you know, there's, there's some questions there of, of whether or not they were that bright and intelligent, but, um, you know, at this point, the FBI profile is, is what you have. Mm-hmm. Now, shortly after the FBI profile is announced, police say they're working off the idea of the FBI profile. And then about a week later, they do a complete 180 and they state that it's a good possibility that these cases may not be related. And I think that comes from maybe some, you know, one being shot and, uh-huh. you know, maybe this one's beaten, you know, I mean. Right. But the FBI profile clearly says these cases are related. Right. So, um, you know, and that's, it, you know, it kind of goes back and forth from here. You know, the, the police say they're working off the FBI profile. The police are looking at the possibility of suspects. Uh, the police come back in and say they do have suspects and you know we'll talk about that and um and then really no information years and years go by and you do get things that come up you know the the police do um participate and give an interview in for 2020 which Mm is you know nationwide um, and that's 1998 when the 2020 comes out. And I have no doubt that part of the reason that they were helpful with that was to try to get word out that these two victims have yet to be identified. And so it's not until the police come out and say we have a big surprise announcement in 2019 that police announced in 2019 that they have identified both Jane and Janet Doe. Right. This is huge. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's great because really, truly, you know, there wasn't a whole lot out there saying this is what we're looking at, or this is what we're doing. And, you know, I have to give them props because 2019, you know, that's when all of this about genetic genealogy is starting to really come out and you're starting to see these cases investigated with genetic genealogy and Janet and Jane Doe. And we've talked about this before. Janet and Jane Doe's cases were solved through genetic genealogy. Mm-hmm. So the first one that we're going to talk about is um, the uh, Jane Doe, who is identified as Audrey Cook. Audrey Cook moved to the Houston Channel View area with her girlfriend around 1976. She was from Memphis, Tennessee, born in Memphis, Tennessee on November 25th, 1955. Her parents um, died shortly after she went missing. So you have somebody who is living, you know, away from Memphis. I mean, we're talking how many hours is that? Oh, hours. I mean, you're looking at 12, 13 hours. Okay. To drive. Yeah. So, um, so you have somebody who's living 
quite a ways away. Um, you don't have cell phone technology or Facebook or anything like that. So you're talking about somebody who would make it a call to home, say, Hey, Write letters, that yeah, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. here's what's going on. And, uh, and so, you know, her parents start to start to try to figure out, you know, what has happened, why have they lost touch with their daughter and then they pass away. Yeah. Without even knowing, you know? Um, and so, you know, it's her uncle who kind of takes up the cause and, um, he, he talks to other family members. Most of the other family members believe that she just simply lost touch with everybody. And, and he starts to, uh, starts to try to look for her. Um, and he becomes ill to give you a little background about what we know about, um, Audrey is that she worked for the Harris, um, Harrison Equipment Company in 1980, and then she worked for Balloon Affair in 1981. She worked as a mechanic for the National Rental Car um, shortly before her death, and then um, her remains are found with Laura Miller. But we don't, sadly, people who knew her at the time that she went missing in the Houston area, you know, there hasn't been much that has come out publicly. There may have been, there may be things that have come out to law enforcement, but there's not much that has come out right. publicly. Right. Um, and so those are, that's what we know about her. Um, what we can tell you as far as our physical description is she is quite a bit taller than our other two victims. Um, and you know, her hair is, is more of a, a reddish blonde than, um, what we have, you know, seen as kind of a, a dirty blonde on, on both Laura and Heidi Miller. Um, and she's a bit older than both Laura Miller and Heidi. She is. And then she does have that gap in her teeth. She does have the gap in her teeth. And in fact, they actually thought that when she was a Jane Doe before they knew who it was that somebody else was her. Yeah. You know, but through testing, they, you know, DNA testing, they found out it wasn't. So. And so, I mean, and her remains are identified. Basically the uncle had children who, you know, they're, uh, submitted their genealogy to, uh, to, you know, public database. And then law enforcement has used that public database to make this connection. And I want to give a shout out to the amateur genealogists and, and people who do this work. I mean, I dabble in genealogy. I find it incredibly fascinating. I think that answers to so many questions that we have, um, will come through, you know, genetic genealogy. And so I, I, find this fascinating, but the volunteers who work for these law enforcement officers and, and stuff like that, who spend the time going through these databases and, and connecting these families, you know, who finally get answers on this, you know, um, kudos to them. This is, this is an incredible thing that they do. There's, and there's a interview out there. I'm not sure what platform it is, but with the Friendswood police department, uh -huh. when they're interviewing Audrey's family and finally, you know, can, connect them and it's it's a pretty it's a pretty interesting little um watch mm -hmm. if you guys get on there so because you can really just see that in their eyes like that closure and that 
you know, all kind of coming together for them right. after all that time. So it just, I get like, I'm getting goosebumps even talking about it. So it's, it's one of my favorite subjects is the genetic genealogy. Right. Really. And I think to, you know, finally have that, that answers, I know her parents are gone and her uncle had passed away at this point in time and stuff, but you know, they didn't give up though. No. And that's gotta be a question, you know, as you get together over the holidays and, you know, I wish we would know what happened, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so I'm glad that they finally do, do have the answers. The second victim who is Janet Doe is identified as Donna Prudhomme. And, um, Donna, we do tend to know a lot more about, um, so what we know about her is that um, she was born in Port Arthur and that she lived in Seabrook. She was known to visit bars on NASA Road 1 and Seabrook. To give give people a visualization or a little idea of how close NASA Road 1 would be to Calder Road. Um, you're talking maybe three or four miles. Okay. So um, if you think about the NASA Space Center that's uh-huh. in Houston, that's in this area, it's a mile or two from there, you know, um, I mean, you cross highway three, which we often reference that too, not far at all. Okay. And so there's a, quite a few little bars and, oh yeah, you know, well, because that's almost a touristy type area if you uh-huh. think about it, because you've got the Kima boardwalk and, you know, places where people go have fun and just kind of get out for the weekend. Mm-hmm. I mean, definitely a lot of stuff going on down there. So yeah. Well, I mean, and if you're known to go out in Seabrook <clears throat> and even work your way up toward NASA Road 1, you're going to go right through Kima. Well, sure. I mean, uh-huh. it's it's all right there. Yeah. I mean, Seabrook is a left, Kima's a right <laughs> off of NASA Road. <laughs> right. Okay. We got confused about this one time when we went out, right? And yeah. You're like, this is not Kima. I'm like, oh. <laughs> it, it's just a blink of the eye, really, you know. Um. So she did have two sons at the time that she went missing and um the two sons were raised by um their grandparents uh recently in a candlelight visual her sister said she knew her sister would not have left those boys and admitted that the family did hire detectives Mm -hmm. in order to try to find them um what we know about uh, Donna is that she did struggle with alcohol and drugs, right? She was 34 years old at the time of her death. And, you know, she looked older, right? I think, you know, when you, when you see pictures of, of what she looked like shortly before the time of her death, you know, you can, certainly see that she was struggling and that's not to victim blame at all. I I want that to be clear. You know, so many of our friends and family members have struggled with this addiction also, Mm -hmm. you know, and, um, it just kind of puts into light a little bit of maybe why you would have a harder time getting attention to the fact that she's missing. Right. You know, and I think when, when you look at a family who's trying to, you know, get somebody to notice that a loved one is missing and, you know, they're going to be asked questions by law enforcement. Well, when was the last time that you saw her? Mm -hmm. You know, what was the circumstances of the last time that you, um, you saw her and, 
when you say, well, you know, we know that she had a, you know, problem with alcohol and drug addiction, you know, especially back then, police would be less likely, I think, to, to think that she hadn't gone missing on her own. Well, sure, because I don't think, you know, drug and alcohol abuse or addiction was looked at the same as it is right now. Right. You know, it was definitely like that black sheep of the family sort mm-hmm. of idea where to them it just oh, she just went missing because of X, Y, and Z, mm-hmm. which now we know there's a lot more than that. And I think that even though she was struggling with that and even though she was having a, a difficult time with that, she was still in contact with her family and still in contact with her children. And so that's when the family is saying, you know, even though she had a struggle with that, that she wouldn't have left those boys without, you know, knowing. Mm-hmm. So um, she had been married prior um and um her husband has uh daryl prudhomme um married they were married for 16 years and uh he was the father of her of her two kids brad and um chad he had passed away before she was identified but he was alive you know um up until you know recently Mm -hmm. so you know he still had that question too of what what had possibly happened to her um sadly one of her children died before knowing what had happened to her too um but when the police are able to come and you know tell the family you know that they have identified her they were at least able to tell her one son you know that um that she had been found and that, you know, she hadn't just walked away. Yeah, she just run you away. Know. So she had um, many aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, cousins, um, and then her son, you know, has his own child. And so it, it certainly answered a lot of questions for a lot of people and finally, you know, gave them the ability to talk about who she was as a person, you know, um, and what she was like growing up and that she was this girl who loved nature and liked to sing and, you know, and laugh and have fun. And, you know, I've been in doing some of the research on her, you know, to see the pictures of her at a young age with her kids and, you know, obviously at a happier time, it's, um, you can tell that, you know, there were, it's. It's, she was definitely living yeah. life, you know, to its fullest, you know. And um, and so she is buried now next to her family and, and was taken back to Port Arthur. And um, so that kind of leads us to, so those are the four victims that we have on Calder Road, which are now identified. I know that in the years of looking at this law enforcement obviously had a hope that if you can identify these last two victims, maybe you can possibly identify who killed them. Right. But it's not like they didn't have a suspect ahead of time. That's right. So, um, and so early on, and I would say with pretty much the FBI profile early on, the police believed that they had one, solid suspect. And so they 
um, set their sights on Robert William Abel. And I think it's, it's hard to say, you know, there are so many factors that led it into that of them looking at him, but the biggest factor that leads to them looking at Robert Abel is that he purchased the property. He did. So in 1987, um, he purchased the property near where the bodies are found. And so you've heard us kind of talk about it before about Stardust Stables. This is the owner of the Stardust Stables. I mean, he was definitely described too as being an awkward person, kind of weird. And, Uh you know, I mean, Tim Miller seemed really believe he he was the one you know yeah i mean and i think that you know early on when the police set their sights on him you know miller certainly does believe that this is a possibility one of the reasons that they start to set their sights on him is that um he his ex-wife goes to them and claims that she believes that he had you know, something to do with it. And that, um, she knew that he had photographs of naked women, you know, um, that, you know, in her mind were, were photographs of naked women who didn't want to be photographed Mm -hmm. and that, um, he, certainly exhibited some odd behavior about the property. So if you go back to the FBI profile, one of the things that the FBI profile is saying is that he's highly organized and intelligent. Robert Abel is a NASA engineer who helped design the Apollo 13 rocket. And one of the things that people say about him is that he was incredibly intelligent. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when you have somebody for that is so intelligent they can come across awkward also Mm -hmm. um but he also was known to visit the crime scene so and again going back and forth to look at that fbi profile is that this person would come back and revisit the crime scene so when they talk about him visiting the crime scene certainly one of the questions that comes up in my mind about that is well this is a crime scene that's in your backyard basically Mm -hmm. and so to me, if something happened that close to property that I owned or was purchasing, I would be incredibly curious about it. I'm not trying to like say that, you know, that should have, have kind of, they should have said no, you know, um, that, that that's just normal. But again, I would have been incredibly curious about it too. Yeah, I mean, even to today, if I own that property, I'd still always like be looking in the backyard, or I don't know. I think it's like in your mind. Well, and you know? we work near there, and we're curious about yes. it. You know, yes. um, we know a lot of people who are very curious about it. So, to give you a little bit of background on him, other than the fact that he was the NASA NASA engineer in 1978, he got a divorce after 21 years of marriage. His wife never accused him of anything any abuse or anything like that, just simply that this was a marriage that didn't work out. So when he gets this divorce, he um, begins going to bars around the NASA area looking for dates. Um, And again, you know, yeah, 
if you if you factor in the last two victims, you know, there is certainly a possibility that both of them were in that area and in bars. And then we do know that Heidi did work right in a bar. Um, and so um in 1983, he lived about a mile from where both Heidi and um, Laura disappeared from. Right. So he was, you know, the fact of the matter is he very easily could have visited that convenience store. What is it? That date, time, location? Yeah. Sort of stuff. I mean, it's, he's right in the middle. <laughs> but it is kind of with his, so he again marries. It's a short-lived uh, relationship. And, um, and then his wife does go to the police and it's with her going to the police that they have enough to say, let's go get a search warrant of the property. And so it's in November of 1983, 1993, that the police, uh, take the search warrant and go out to the property. They take a ton of stuff out of there. Um, they take a huge amount of photographs and slides and, you know, um, uh, reel to reel, uh, video, which for some people might be <laughs> a little, little confusing because I mean, even I grew up with VHS tapes, mm -hmm. tapes. Um, and so, but I have like my grandfather's, right. um, videos that they took. And so I can see how he would have had that type of, of thing, especially when he's married and, you know, has a family and stuff, they would have possibly taken that type of video, you know, that he would have had. And they do take these photographs that he has of the, you know, nude women. Um, they are able to identify these photographs. Um, and, uh, it does, later come out that this was possibly somebody that he had a relationship with. Right. So, um, you know, nowadays, you know, people take them on their cell phone and back then people, you know, would take a Polaroid. Um, yeah. and so, um, it doesn't, the fact that he had nude photographs of somebody doesn't really make me all that suspicious, but he did have a 22 caliber, um, gun. They did take that. And then they also took, um, his ammunition into um get tested get tested mm -hmm. um one of the interesting things here is during this police search they also take hairs from a hairbrush from him and they take vacuum cleaner bags of vacuum cleaner dirt and stuff like that now this goes back to that ultimate question that says in 1993 so we're very very early on you know at the possibility of any possible dna but again if they're taking hairs from a hairbrush they're taking his hairs from the hairbrush so i would question what they're comparing it to right you know when i when i answered kim's question earlier and said you know i had my doubts about dna this is one of those times when you come back and you start to read through this and getting this idea of what they're taking and i do think to myself wow yeah I mean, you know too, what comes to my mind especially at this time it's like they could be trying to compare carpet fibers they could try to be finding you know maybe any fibers from their clothing if right they had it. i mean you know i mean i know 
there's just all kinds of stuff. And and so there, so there is, but with so little released by police and they're not going to release, these are open cases. They're not going to release information Mm -hmm. to us to say, Hey, yeah. Announce it out on a podcast. Um, but we've seen capital murder charges on innocent people with less than that. But it does make you wonder what they're comparing it to, exactly. you know, or what they're, lo- what they're looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, so, and he does. So in November of 1983, they take all this stuff from his house in January of 1994, he sues them to get it all back. So, um, you know, he's, I mean, granted, obviously, if these are family photographs and slides, and certainly if they are photographs of your ex-girlfriend that you have, she probably has wants you to have it back. But, um, you know, police, a hearing was set, you know, and, and police did not want to return things. They didn't have a chance to look through it yet. Um, but eventually, that stuff did come back to him. Um, and you know, as far as we know, police said at that point, they said he was a suspect. He wasn't their main, their only suspect. Right. Um, you know, and I think this is where Miller certainly confronts him, you know, um, because he certainly believes that, that there's a lot. I know that, um, Tim Miller has certainly talked in more recent years about the fact that um he regrets some of what um what had been done there but um you know i think that that there's some very confusing things that go on here there there are some things that he said to police that make you go what you know i mean before really being asked, you know, why he's hanging out, kind of, you know, talking to police who are doing their investigation. He does tell the cops that um, he couldn't have committed the, the murder because he had a torn rotator cuff and he couldn't, couldn't carry anything. Um, you know, so that's kind of, you know, it's odd that you volunteer that information, but at the same time, you know, if, if that is the case, you know, there is reason to suspect that, Hey, maybe you couldn't. Um, he also said that, you know, some of the, um, photographs that were taken were photographs that he had hired a private detective to take in the case. And, you know, again, I, I kind of wonder, you know, what exactly are are you hiring a private detective to do? Um, so it, it just begs, you know, the question a little bit. I, I kind of see why they had him on the radar. Um, but then, you know, one of the other things that kind of comes out in some of this is a lot about the Stardust Ranch. And visually, I thought some of this was important. So the Stardust Ranch, the property they purchased was a thousand acres. During the time that he had it, over 400,000 people visited the ranch. He had 65 horses for trail riding. The park offered different adventures like trail riding, tours, including a working um, oil well, a chuck wagon, a campfire where you could hear singing cowboys. And um, 
trail rides that were romantic with like a white and black horse, a wine and cheese picnic, a hideaway uh, park where you could go overnight and camp. So, so you and I went down to where this is and it's just hard to believe that there was that much undeveloped back then that, you know, you would ride your, your horses back into anything to, to me now, what you see is, you know, a subdivision and, and kind of some dirty, dusty fields, but you know, it's just kind of odd to think that, you know, you would have had, you know, a thousand acres and 65 horses and trails that mingered back in there somewhere where you wouldn't see the, you know, um, trailer park that's (laughs) right there. But, you know, one of the other interesting things that kind of talked about is that when you're camping there, you could hear the coyotes. So, you know, definitely a little bit of animal activity going back in there and more rural than I think we give it credit for. Right. You know, um, certainly a lot more rural than it is now. And so it does give you a visualization of that. Um, so sadly, um, the only other thing that I kind of got out of that is that, you know, um, so he, he was married to his first wife that lasted 21 years. He was married to another woman that lasted 41 days. And then he got very upset and the divorce happened relatively quickly. And then he did marry a third woman and she is kind of the one who, who goes and calls the police and tells the police that he was prone to fits of rage, even though he never hit her. But the one thing that does give me pause here is that she does talk to police about how he was known to hit the horses with pipes and that he was known to kind of beat livestock and leave them, you know, dead in a field. You know, that, that certainly, you know, is, is a darker side of somebody. Sure. And so I don't know that it's, it's enough to make him a suspect. It, you know, I, I see why the, the police, especially compared with the FBI profile, you know, spent quite a bit of time with him. Um, he was also known to keep newspaper articles on the case. Um, and if that would make you a suspect, then so would we, you and I be, you know, other than the fact that we didn't leave in the area, but, um, you know, again, this is something that, you know, he had a connection to this property. And so, you know, I think that, that you can, you can see why he, he might have. Sure. In 1980, in 1998, he went on 2020, which is the episode that we talked about earlier, you know, where the police also got involved and, you know, in, in looking for, um, you know, trying to find out who Jane and Janet Doe were and he took a polygraph test while in 2020. So um, he volunteered for that. He wanted it to be in the public eye. And um, so you can watch the episode, you know, to give you an idea. This is kind of a, a gentleman who does a little bit appear to be an awkward individual. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did pass the polygraph test um, while he was on air. The investigator, who's an officer 
Bittner at the time does contact does comment that he never uses polygraph tests as a tool because he believes liars can pass and others who are telling the truth can fail. Um, which is certainly true. Bittner also has several comments that he makes in um, different places where he talks about the fact that he thought it was weird that Robert Abel moved to League City, purchased this property when he owned a family ranch, another place in Texas. Um, and he, he seems to think that that's strange that you would, I, I don't, I don't know. To me, that's neither here nor there. Yeah. You know, I, just because your family owns a property somewhere else doesn't mean that that's, that you purchasing a property is awkward or is, is weird. Yeah. Um, and so, but I mean, that is one of the things that, um, that does happen. Sadly, even though police go back and forth, they don't necessarily clear him. They talk about him being a little bit less of a suspect. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Tim Miller certainly comes out and says he no longer believes that Robert Ayler Abel was the person who killed his daughter. But this would follow this man forever. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the ranch would pretty much close because of this. Because, I mean, who would want to go out on a romantic horseback ride of, you know, a guy who you suspected as a serial killer's ranch? I mean, that's well, right actually near the field where it yeah. happened. I mean, like, come on. It might be a draw more nowadays, but um, <laughs> less probably back in the early 2000s. But so sadly, um, he would drive his golf cart um, across a set of train tracks and be hit by a train. There's suspicion back and forth. Um, some people say that, you know, it was a suicide. Other people say that it was just a tragic accident. Um, you know, one way or another, he was killed by being hit by the train. Right. And so, you know, um, and that pretty much kind of leads us to the end of who Robert Abel was. For me... <laughs> And this is just me. And again, you know, we are not an FBI profiler. We are just podcasters. I, I don't see a lot there with Robert Abel. Me either. I think um, if they had a way to like connect him, I, I think it would have been done. Uh -huh. I mean, even through, I don't know, shoddy police work if they could have done it they would have uh -huh. i mean that's just my personal opinion but i don't know i think there are a lot of i think if you if you were to say here's the fbi profile let's find somebody who fits the fbi profile i see where you're going with this but i think that that's basically as far as you can. As far as you can. Yeah. And, you know, just the connection to the property, you know. Um, but there's there's no past crime that says he picked up this girl and he got a, she got away or somebody came out of the woodwork and said, yeah, you know, he talked about this type of thing or anything like that. It's just, there's just little pieces of it and the connection to the, to the property and it just... I don't know. I mean, if, if he did this, then 
the FBI profile was spot on. This was a highly intelligent, highly organized person who managed to get away with murder. Right. So, and that's basically kind of all we have for this episode. We will be talking about two other suspects in our next episode. So, um, kind of stay tuned for that because, well, I think, you know, we'll talk about two or three in the right. next couple episodes because I, we have a couple of to talk about. Um, and I feel like there's a little bit more there on some than others. So stay tuned for that. Stay tuned. Thanks for joining Until us next today. Time. Bye guys. Bye.